Software Engineering Daily was started a year and a half ago, based on what I learned from my podcasting experience on Software Engineering Radio. Last week, I interviewed Robert Blumen, the editor of Software Engineering Radio, about how Software Engineering Radio was started and how it is produced. And in today's episode, Robert interviews me about this podcast. You have asked, or you, the collective listeners, have asked for an episode about how Software Engineering Daily works and some of the processes I have in place, and this is that episode. If you're thinking about starting a podcast about Software Engineering or really anything, this podcast will be useful to you. We discuss the processes behind the show, we discuss how to prepare, how to conduct an interview, why people listen to podcasts, and how to get advertisers, how to do advertising, or at least how I do advertising. I also give some of the history behind Software Engineering Daily, why I started it, and what my goals are. I had a great time in this interview. Robert Blumen is a great interviewer, and I hope you enjoy it as well. For Software Engineering Daily, this is Robert Blumen. I will be guest hosting this show. For my guest, I have Jeff Meyerson. Jeff is the founder and editor of Software Engineering Daily. Jeff, welcome to your own show. Thank you, Robert. We decided to do this show because your listeners would like to know more about you and the show. I want to start out with how did you get into software and computing? I started studying computer science in college in my third or fourth year. I took a random computer science introductory class and I realized it was for me. And from there, I went into it full force and started taking computer science in my major and then did some internships, eventually graduated and started working in the industry. What kind of jobs did you do? I interned at some contracting places and a uh, startup in Austin called Spiceworks. And then I interned at eBay. And then when I graduated, I worked at a trading place in Chicago called Peak Six. And then I moved to Seattle, I worked at an ad tech company, and then I worked at Amazon. That's a number of different employers. Are there any generalizations about how, how did you like working in for a company? I didn't like working for a company because I felt that, um, <clears throat> well, I think part of it was due to the fact that uh, my first job was as a poker player, and it was very independent, and I didn't learn to work within a team, and so many of the habits that I had from working independently, I tried to translate to working within a team and they did not work very well. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that was one example of things of, of how I was not a good fit within a big company. Uh, but uh, the things that I liked about working in a big company were they put systems in place that ensure that the software gets improved over time a lot of the organizational practices that we've covered on Software Engineering Daily, as well as your the show that you edit, Software Engineering Radio, um, and just the fact that there is teamwork. And I learned to actually like teamwork, even though I wasn't very good at it at first. You said a lot of practices you learned playing poker and other things you did outside work didn't translate into the work environment. Could you give an example of that? In poker, you are operating out of a zero-sum mindset. You're, everybody is a competitor, and you share information only when it's quite clear that you're going to get something back out of it. And when you're working within a company, it's usually more productive to have a positive-sum mindset and try to help people as your modus operandi, and then things just tend to come back to you karmically, um, which tends to be a better outlook on the world in general. You mentioned poker. Are there any other avocations or hobbies you pursued that had a big influence on you? In high school, I started writing music on a composing tool called FL Studio. And since then, I've learned to write music on a variety of programs and using some instruments. And this was before I started to learn to program, but I found that the tools used to create music are somewhat similar to the tools you use to write a program. It's somewhat procedural, there are certain rules you need to follow, but there's a lot of avenues to accomplish the same kind of task that you want to, much like programming. So that was influential. Podcasting, it's a relatively new media. How did you first become aware of podcasts? 
I started listening to podcasts in high school. I listened to the typical ones that people listen to, NPR podcasts. And over time, I became interested in a wider array of podcasts, and I was listening to a lot of audiobooks too. And then in college, I contacted you at Software Engineering Radio because I was listening to so many different podcasts, and I found that Software Engineering Radio was one that was particularly inspiring and interesting to me and decided that I wanted to become a part of it. So that's how I got involved in actually producing podcast content. What made you want to become a part of that show? It was the fact that I would listen to these shows and I would be so confused and yet so intrigued at the same time because I was taking these classes in college and most of it was basic stuff, syntax, uh, how does a compiler work, etc. And then on the show, you would hear things like Hadoop and distributed systems and uh, agile management principles. And these were things that were so foreign to me, yet seemed somewhat related to what I was learning in school. So it, w- it was clear that there was such a higher dimensionality to software engineering, and I wanted to be exposed to it more quickly than the classes were exposing it to me in college. And I thought that pot- the, uh, interviewing people on a podcast would be a good opportunity to accelerate that learning process. To what extent do you think university students are incorporating podcasts into their learning of computer science? I was the only person I knew who listened to podcasts about software engineering in college, but I know from talking to some of my listeners that there are a lot of students out there, maybe not all at the same college, but there are people who are listening to podcasts a lot and a lot of software engineering podcasts. It's certainly become much more popular since I graduated school. So uh, I don't think there's a universal uh, way that people are uh, listening to podcasts, but I think that the people that are listening to software engineering podcasts in college, uh, the way that they listen to them is if they're learning about a particular topic they will search for podcasts about that topic and listen to those podcasts maybe when they're walking around campus or exercising and it will be a nice complement to their coursework. There are metrics for written English where you can calculate a number which would be the grade level where reading comprehension should match your content. Like you could try to aim content at a eighth grade level Do you have a level in mind when you're creating software engineering shows? What level of experience are you you aiming at where they should be able to understand the show? I copied the model of software engineering radio where every show tends to start from a ground level of what is X, essentially. Or I've adopted that sometimes to be basically where I will say to the guest, uh, Hadoop is a distributed system for running large batch processing on uh, a data set that doesn't fit on a single machine. Why has Hadoop been important to the software engineering field? So I give the listener a chance to, maybe they have six months or nine months of software engineering experience. I still want to give them something in the first five to eight minutes of the show And then if the show progresses into more complex topics, that's okay to me. Um, I don't necessarily have a target uh, experience level listener base, partly because people learn at different paces and also partly because I have so much content that I produce. If if there's a show that is above somebody's uh, ability to understand, they can always switch to a different show. Yeah, and I I wonder if all your listeners listen to every single one of your shows, do you have any way measuring that? I did a survey, and the sur- according to the survey data, m- most of the listeners listened to, I think it was 60 to 70% of listeners listened to two to three shows per week. And then some of them listened to almost every show, and so I think it was 20% listened to almost every show, and then 20% listened to about one show per week. Let's go back to you were a host on Software Engineering Radio, uh, you did that for how long? Uh, I'm still doing it. Yeah. So I was so I was doing it for I was doing just software engineering radio for about two years, and then I started a podcast about Quora, and then uh, that was a podcast that I did about sixty episodes of. Uh, 
and then I switched into software engineering daily. What gave you the idea of starting software engineering daily? It was the fact that software engineering radio was so useful to me and people who are fans of software engineering radio understand why that show is unique and why it has been unique for so long because it has a very unique format in that it is not uh, it's not totally free form it feels somewhat scripted at times somewhat improvisational at times but it is highly informational and um, so I wanted to replicate that on a daily basis because I saw our numbers you know you send out, these numbers to the software engineering radio podcaster group. And there were, we had so many listeners. We have so many listeners and we have so many people who send us emails that will say something like, I've listened to the entire back catalog and now I'm going through it again because it was so useful to me. And so it's quite clear that this content was evergreen. People were listening to it multiple times. So I think that was a sign that there was so much demand that even if I produced a show that was... 60% or 50% as good as software engineering radio, there would still be a hunger of listenership for it. And at the same time, I saw the price of podcast ads was pretty good. People were adopting podcast ads more aggressively as an advertising strategy. And so I thought it might be a reasonable business to start. Software engineering daily, then it, it, it is a business. Yes, it is a business. Was it a tough decision to leave your job and go into business for yourself? Not really, because I was sort of struggling at Amazon. I wasn't having a great time. Um, I didn't feel like I was contributing a ton to my team. I, I didn't feel inspired by my work. And um, so, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't a difficult decision to me. It was more like uh, I saw what I, I was I had been looking for an opportunity for a business to start for a while, but nothing seemed very plausible to me until I thought of software engineering daily. You mentioned that you're pretty much adopting the format from Software Engineering Radio. I did not come up with this format, but I think it's a good format. I insist the hosts follow that format. You're doing your own show. You could vary the format. You could do anything you want. Why did you decide to stick with that format? I knew that it would be popular. So I And I have deviated from the format somewhat. Like today there was a special bonus episode where I had my friend Hasib, who's an engineer at Airbnb, he found some of his favorite debugging stories online. There are people who have written blog posts or Usenet posts about these complex bugs that they've had. And he reread their blog posts essentially like an audio book. Um, and I, that show is already pretty popular, uh, even though it got posted today. I see people are liking it a lot. Uh, and I have tried other experimental uh, concepts, like I copied, you know, Twit, Twit, This Week in Tech has this format where Leo Laporte brings on two or three people who he likes to talk to tech, talk about tech, and they just basically go through news stories and discuss news stories through the lens of This Week in Tech. And I've copied that format and done it, done it uh, on one or two episodes, and, and those, sh those shows were popular. Um, but going back to the software engineering radio format... That as a baseline, I know people like it. I know people find it useful. They like to listen to it on their commute and on their commute on their commute to work and on their commute home. So it's 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 a great place to just kind of uh, create a beachhead of content that I know people want to listen to, and I can branch off from that and try little experiments and see what people like. But uh, it's just a safe format for me. That's why I copied it, and that's why I've stuck to it. When you try different things, are you tracking how? each show does and looking for what variations might work or not work? Yes. Uh, and some of the shows that uh, have been really popular have been the experimental episodes. And some of the, the shows that have been unpopular have been the experimental episodes. So it is there is an element of risk. What's one that didn't work out very well? Uh, I did a show that talked... It was, so I've done some monologue shows. And when I do these monologue shows, um, I don't run ads on them. I air them on a Saturday. So I do five shows a week that are basically in the software engineering radio format. And then occasionally I do these monologue episodes. <clears throat> and the monologue episodes are kind of where I talk more uh, editorially or subjectively, basically channeling 
my own experiences and the experiences uh, the, the, and the sh- and the shows I've done, kind of the cross section of those two things to say, you know, I've been doing all these shows recently and this trend has come up and it aligns with my uh, past experiences working as a software engineer. <clears throat> and here is a monologue about this topic. Two or three of those shows have done really well, <clears throat> but one that I did about music performed less well. It was a show where I was basically talking about uh, the parallels that I found between writing music and writing software. There were a few people who were very uh, moved by the episode and found it quite interesting, but other people were like, eh, this is not as relevant to me as a software engineer. I kind of felt like this episode was a little too self-indulgent. Um, and so, yeah, that was I would consider that one kind of a failure. Rarely do I find it very compelling for one person to talk for... Uh, an hour or any length of time because it often sounds like they're trying to have a conversation with themselves. And it's also difficult for one person to really say 30 minutes of new material every week because each of us, we tend to know quite a lot about things that we've invested a lot in, but it's inherently limited how many things you can be an expert on. I know you have views on the importance of conversation. What are your views about that? Well, my views about the the two-person conversation show is that the core reason that people are listening to podcasts is because they want to feel less alone. That is what I believe for for, for many instances of people. Um, there's a writer, David Foster Wallace, who I read a lot of his work in college, and one of his beliefs was that the main reason to... The main uh, objective of a writer is to make the reader feel less alone. Now, reading is a different process than listening to a podcast, but I, they are somewhat similar uh, in certain ways. Um, but if the core reason is to make the listener feel less alone, well, if there's two people talking, it's going to make them feel less alone than if there's one person talking. Uh, you know, it makes you feel like you're social. It makes you feel like you're in a group of people. Um, you're just kind of like a fly on the wall, or you're 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 the third person at the dinner table, um, listening to your two best friends having a, a compelling conversation. Uh, it makes you feel like you're in the social milieu a little bit more. If you ask me, I would probably say no, no. I listen to these tech podcasts to <laughs> learn about the field, and I'm trying to grow in my career. Do you think people are? Um, fooling themselves at, about why they listen to these this type of content? No, because the, you know, you, if, if you were just listening to Feel Less Alone, then you could listen to any two-person podcast. But you're, you're listening to Feel Less Alone maybe as the primary basal objective, but beyond that, of course, you're going to listen to something that is actually compelling and interesting to you. Uh, you know, you're listening to to a two person conversation with people that you would like to go have lunch with or go have coffee with. So you you, you know you could actually picture yourself listening to that conversation in person and and find it interesting. Okay, so let's let's come back then the show. So you started this show. Uh, you're doing five shows a week. How, how long have you been doing the show? I've been doing the show for about a year and eight months at this point, or a year and six months, I think. How do you measure growth? I measure growth using a tool called Libsyn that is a combination of a CDN and a metrics tool. So the show has grown to about, uh, it gets now it gets about 20,000 listeners Monday through Friday. And early on, it got like no listeners. It was like 100 people or something in the first month or something like that. Maybe 1,000 by the end of the first month. What are some other metrics you pull from Libsyn? And do you learn anything interesting that you didn't expect? The geographic representation I looked at once or twice, but mostly I just look at daily listens slash downloads. The you can't honestly you can't get very fine grained um, metrics other than like user agent, you know what kind of phone are they using, uh, and geographic. What are the other? One? I mean, it's the same stuff we look at on software engineering radio, and I think that the just the geographic distribution was similar. I think we checked it one time. Like there's what is there like a lot of people? It's like fifty percent United States, and then some UK, some Germany, some India. Software engineering radio is 40% US, uh, about 70% the Anglo-Saxon world as a whole. And I, Germany is second around 25. 
Do you have any other sources of data about who your listeners are or listener behavior? I did a survey, and the survey showed that most of the listeners were people with six or more years of software engineering experience. And actually, I think there was like six, it was 55 or 60% people with six or more years of experience, and the rest, <clears throat> the rest of it was people with less experience. Um, I don't recall the other survey results. One of the things we get from Libsyn, it gives you a good indication of what type of device people are listening on. Is that a data you look at? There's certainly correlation between, uh, you know, iPhone users tend to be higher income, Android users are lower income. But within the software engineering world, I think this breaks down a little bit because <clears throat> it's, it's more like... You can pull from Libsyn what type of device people are listening on. Do you look at that? Do you know what kind of devices? Are people sitting at their computer? Are they listening on a mobile? So it's mainly mainly mobile phones, but there are a lot of people that actually listen on the browser at work. And you can see that both in the user agent behavior that they're listening on a browser and just from anecdotal evidence from talking to people, like they listen at work while they're working, which I find crazy. I could never listen to a highly technical podcast while I was writing code, but apparently some people are able to. Do you have any other ways besides a survey of connecting with your listeners and getting feedback? I have a Slack channel, and if you want to sign up, you can go to my website, softwareengineeringdaily.com, and sign up for the Slack channel. There's an email list with, uh, you know, you can also subscribe to that on the website, and people send me a lot of email. I, I ask in a lot of episodes, like, please send me an email. If you like this episode, send me an email. If you dislike the episode, please send me an email. And a lot of the show has been shaped by this one-to-one feedback that I've gotten. Can you say generally what kind of feedback you're getting? A lot of times it's like, please do more shows on this topic. Like, uh, you know, you did a show on this topic, but you left out this area. Can you zoom in on this area and do an entire show about it? Or you have done zero shows on this topic. Can you please do a show on this? I'd love to hear more about it. <clears throat> Speaking, my experience at Software Engineering Radio, we get really a handful of listener comments. We would love to get more. We're not sure if one person emailing us is really representative of a thousand other people or it's just that one person's opinion. Have you found listener requests are pretty predictive of how well a show will do? No. In fact, the most popular episodes are shows that people did not request. Well, one exception to that is I did a show on Rust after a bunch of people requested it, and then that show was very popular. But a lot of the shows, like the most popular show I did was one on salary negotiation, uh, an interview, again, with that same guy, Hasib, and uh, that show was really popular. Nobody had asked for a show on salary negotiation, but there are a lot of people who actually ask for soft skills shows, so I guess in that way it is aligned with what the listeners were asking for. We've been discussing at Software Engineering Radio doing a survey. The first draft of the survey we saw had over 30 questions, and we were trying to pare them down. There was some questions aimed at listeners. Do you want more content about this or about that or about that? And we decided we could do without that question because we see it more. It's our job to come up with part of the, part of the value of our show is we can tell people, here's some stuff you may want to know about you didn't know about. Uh, and do you see yourself then? Are you a leader or a follower in terms of you just respond to customer demand or are you telling people where the, they should be going? Since I do five shows a week, I can do both. Like I can respond to what people want to hear more of and I can also experiment with my own formats. So there's not really a dichotomy there. I often find with job, I'm heads down. I'm dealing with whatever technologies I need to learn in my job. And I need to step outside of that to get an idea of what stuff is on the horizon I should be looking at. Um, do you see yourself in that, serving that need for the development community? Certainly some people do that uh, as listeners. Like they like listening to the show because it gives them exposure to new ideas. Other people are the opposite. They will listen to only shows that apply to their everyday work. So I try to report on stuff that I'm interested in and that people have expressed an interest in uh, and the listeners have different um, missions for how the content they're consuming relates to the work that they're doing day to day. Some people 
like what they're doing, they're comfortable with what they're doing, uh, and they know their field really, really well. So for them, they don't need another show on what they're already an expert in, but they would love exposure to other topics. And for other people, uh, they uh, are very new to what they're working on. They've suddenly switched to front-end development, and now they're consuming all the content about front-end development that they can find, and it's useful for them to hear podcasts that relate to that new content. So 20,000 downloads a day, and you're still growing. Do you have any idea, does anyone know how big the market is for podcasts like this? I don't think anybody knows, especially because it's a moving target, and podcasts are growing. Software Engineering Radio gets, like, what is it, 40,000 downloads per episode or something? So, 40, 50,000 downloads per episode. So, And also, I go to conferences, and I talk to people sometimes. I'm like, do you listen to podcasts? They say yes. Do you listen to any software engineering podcasts? Oftentimes, they're like, well, I listen to Software Engineering Radio sometimes. I'm like, have you heard of Software Engineering Daily? No, don't know what that is. So... The discoverability of software engineering, I'm sorry, of podcasts is uh, not totally uh, easy. So I've thought about like doing some banner ads or something, Facebook ads. Um, so long story short, I have no idea how big it can get. Is the show your sole business and your sole source of income? Yes, it is. Was it your intention from the beginning that the show would be a source of income? Yes, I I planned it to be because I... When I left Amazon, I didn't have a ton of money saved up. I had enough money for to last me maybe six months, and I wanted to make it a business by then. Let's talk about how the podcasting business works. How do you make money off a podcast? Advertising. So I send a lot of emails to companies and say, hey, I run Software Engineering Daily. There's a lot of developers who listen to this show. I think it would be a good fit for you as an advertiser. For many of the advertisers I've dealt with, it's been the first podcast that they advertise on. So it's kind of a complex sales process. um, And it's taught me a lot about the process of sales, which has been an interesting dimension that I didn't expect uh, to have to learn as much as I have. What have you learned about sales from this process? Sometimes leads take a really long time to develop. You might email somebody and say, hey, you should check this out as an advertiser. Actually, you never want to say that. You want to say something that's a little more uh, welcoming. You don't want to say you should. You 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 want to be just making them aware of it. Um, So like diplomacy. uh, Diplomacy is a big deal in sales. Uh, And so you you never want to like shut somebody out. You never want to insult somebody. You never want to uh, do anything that might turn them off long term um, because things that seem like a cold leads often term, turn into warmer leads, especially like as the audience grows. And if you've turned, you know, if you've ruined a relationship with somebody in the past, then it doesn't matter. Even if you're giving them a deal that make that would make financial sense to them, they're not going to want to deal with you if you've, if you've turned them off relationship wise. What fraction of your time is spent on sales versus content? I try to batch it. So I send large, uh, uh, batches of emails to companies after I've compiled uh, lists of leads. And uh, so I would say I probably spend 15%, per- uh, 10% of my time on sales and, and advertiser relationships. You were, <clears throat> the, I, I've been listening to podcasts long enough that I remember time when no podcasts had ads. Now most podcasts have ads. As you were saying, it's a new, relatively new market. How are you? Uh, are you putting in a lot of effort to educating potential ad buyers about the podcast market? Most of the buyers understand the value of podcasts, but they probably have not tried advertising on a podcast. So it's a matter of helping them get over the discomfort of trying something new and making sure that you're going to make them feel that they got a good deal, either by, you know, you can... I, I tend to offer some kind of contingency where I'm like, look, if you at the end of this deal, if you feel like the metrics aren't good enough or you feel like the advertising didn't go well, I am always open to providing you some kind of free content at the end or, or some free ads or something. I want to make you whole. I want to make you feel like you got a good deal out of this um, because I understand podcasting is new and weird and sometimes you may not even be able to see how good the results are um, 
So it's more making them feel comfortable in experimenting rather than making them aware of the podcast itself. Because they usually know, okay, podcasts are getting big or they listen to podcasts themselves. I mean, most people in tech listen to podcasts or they have listened to a podcast. They understand that the field is growing, but they don't quite know if it's like acceptable in the world of at, like if I'm a marketer, if I go to my manager and say, hey, I spent 20% of my budget this quarter on podcasts, what's their manager going to say? That's the big question. If their manager is cool with it, then they'll probably buy more podcast ads. But if their manager is like, I don't listen to podcasts, I don't know about podcasts, Where are you meeting your KPIs through this podcast? And if they're not, then like that doesn't look good on them. So yeah, it, but it depends from, podcaster, from uh, advertiser to advertiser. Do your advertisers have any ways of quantifying the impact of the ad they buy on your show? Well, when you hear the custom URL, so you hear hired.com slash se daily. You just gave a free ad. I did give a free I did give a free ad. Um, hired has been the longest running sponsor, so it's fair to do that. Um, you know, if they're getting enough leads generated from people going to that URL, then it's an easy it's an easy re up for them. They, they you know it makes sense for them to buy more ads if they're seeing enough conversions from people going to that URL. Um, you know, they might also see people who are writing in, uh, you know, how did you hear about us at some point in the in the workflow? Uh, how did you hear about us? Well, I heard about you on Software Engineering Daily. That's another way of them measuring. But um, by and large, it's not very measurable. But uh, that that's my impression. It's not a super measurable ad channel. But I've been doing a lot of shows on, I've been doing a lot of shows on ad fraud, which is typically display ad fraud. And what you learn when you look deep into the, the digital advertising space is that it's hard to measure any element of advertising, despite what people might tell you about display advertising or Facebook advertising or Twitter advertising. It is really hard to get accurate metrics on any kind of advertising. Personally, I don't have any expertise in the ad space, but I am aware that there is a market and there are market rates for ads in different channels banner ads in the print media, radio, TV established channels. How can you figure out referencing comparables in other ad channels? What is a reasonable price for an ad based on what the advertiser is going to get on a new channel like podcasting? What I've done is looked at as much of the market as I can find. I look for other podcasters and I see what they're charging and that's basically what a market rate is. Is like, what are people paying for it? And it, especially if it's something like advertising, where it's really hard to measure the uh, how effective it is, you can't really do anything else except go for what is you know what is the market uh, honing in on. And so you know that also uh, happens in the sense that I'm talking to so many advertisers, I get a sense for what they want to pay. Uh, what is what are they willing to pay? Um, so it's really a matter of just like uh, in 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 uh, in trading they call it liquidity pinging. Like how much? Like what is the market? At, are you just pinging the market and trying to understand what are people actually willing to pay? I'm not going to ask what your advertisers pay you, but are there any publicly <coughs> available sources of what the going rates are for podcasts? What Actually, most podcasts keep it pretty opaque, and even and the podcast networks also keep it pretty opaque because, you know, when you're making a deal with an advertiser, ultimately the maximum value that the advertiser can pay is whatever is, you know, the expected value of those podcast ads, and that's going to vary from customer to customer. Like if if Frito Lay was going to run podcast ads on Software Engineering Daily it would make sense for them to pay a much lower price. Like if they could pay one cent per ad, that would probably be worth the brand advertising. But their expected value for the payout from that ad, for like the customer lifetime value of winning over somebody with a Cheetos ad on, a, on Software Engineering Daily is much lower than something like Hired where if they have a conversion and they get to hire and somebody gets hired and they get a finder's fee payout from that that's a much higher expected value for them so in some sense like price discrimination actually makes sense for podcast ads what is different about internet media compared to things like broadcast radio 
is when you produce a piece of content, it stays up there forever. You talked about the word evergreen a while back. Can you define that? Evergreen is content that people still read even though it's been around for a while. So a Dostoevsky novel is evergreen content. Uh, a blog post that, like, I remember there's a blog post by Steve Yegi about how to get hired at Google. That's evergreen because people read it every hiring season at uh, in, in universities. Um Software Engineering Radio produces evergreen content because people repeatedly go into the back catalog and consume extremely old content. I mean, well, extremely old by internet standards, like 10 years old or eight years old. Um, That's evergreen content, stuff that stays relevant even though time has passed. On Software Engineering Radio, I don't know what you define as the current content. We do three shows a month. We have maybe 35% of our downloads during a given month of the shows from that month. So we're having a lot of stuff pulled from that catalog. Do you have any data on your shows? And what do you, do you have a time window where you think of a show as current and when does it become back catalog? I would say it becomes back catalog if it is beyond, I mean, this is a really loose metric, but if it's older than six weeks, that's back catalog. Cause that means somebody's really delving into the older episodes and they're not just like scrolling into the recent history and seeing what shows have aired in the last six weeks that are relevant to them. They're going back, you know, several months and, and looking into, uh, looking at, looking at stuff that is particularly relevant to them. And the reason this is good for software engineering podcasts is because a show about Java garbage collection is not going to become useless anytime soon. You know, even, even if the Java garbage collector has significant changes in five years. It's not going to be so dramatic that a show on Java garbage collection today uh, is is going to be totally out of date. And this is also true just because computer science principles and software engineering principles they tend to to be tried and true and 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 uh, and really durable. Do you have any data on what fraction of your downloads are current versus back catalog? I think it's like 50% back catalog. Let's bring us back to ads. So in, in relation to ads is when you're selling an ad, you could tell the advertiser, people are going to be listening to this show five years from now, maybe. But is the advertiser willing to pay for an ad that's, no. How, how far out into the future is the advertiser willing to pay, even if you think people be listening to the show in a year, are they willing to pay for that listen? I sell on a very short time horizon. So six six weeks, or sorry, um, I sell on like a quarterly time horizon. And the conversations with advertisers typically aren't about, uh, is this, epi- is this adver- advertisement going to be on the show in perpetuity? Um, basically because the conversations I have with advertisers, it tends to be the more, uh, the faster we can come to a deal, the better. And so making deals about like how long is this advertisement going to be spliced into the show or uh, like, you know, how long until uh, you get your requisite number of listens that you're buying this ad for, uh, those conversations don't really happen as much. It's more like, here's how the show has been performing lately. Um, we're going to air your ads over the next quarter. Done deal. This Discussion of the back catalog and the time duration of advertising leads to an issue known as dynamic cuts. Yeah. What, what is that? Dynamic cuts are you can cut new ads into old episodes, which makes sense if you have a podcast where much of the listenership is listening to back catalog episodes. So if those episodes are not providing you monetary value anymore uh, as a podcaster, it would make sense to cut in new ads and... Uh, if you can sell ads against that inventory. If I'm your advertiser, I bought a quarter's worth of ads. At the end of a quarter, if you didn't dynamically cut, you're giving free ads in perpetuity. But the advertiser might not be willing to pay for an ad that's going to be heard in six months or a year. So it makes sense for you to refresh your ad inventory and make it more valuable to you and the advertiser. That's right. So that's a lot about the business. Let's talk about the mechanics of producing a show. Um, what are the steps in bringing a show into being? 
Step one is emailing somebody that would come on the show to talk about a topic that you are interested in. So I email somebody about Netflix's architecture so we can talk about Netflix. Once they say yes, then I start the outline. Creating the outline consists of thinking of some critical questions, perhaps watching YouTube videos, reading blog posts about this topic. And once I've got two pages of content of questions that I want to ask somebody, then I feel like I'm prepared for the interview. And then once the day that I've scheduled with the guest comes, then I interview them. And that's, those are all the steps of doing the interview. What happens once the show's been recorded? Once the show's been recorded, I send it to a contractor, and the contractor does the editing. Um, I've worked with several different contractors to, to get this editing done, and uh, I also send them audio files of the ads that I do and the music to be interspersed with the show. What does the editor do? The editor splices together the different audio files that I've sent him or her and creates the Frankenstein product at the end. Okay. Uh, And then what happens to that, the final cut? The final cut he sends back to me, and I post it on Libsyn, which is, again, that CDN that measures the podcast metrics. And then I take the audio file that is posted to Libsyn, and I put it into a WordPress post. And I publish the WordPress post, and that is what people access. People are usually accessing it from a podcast player, which consumes an RSS feed version of the WordPress feed. You, you publish it, it goes on RSS, people see it in their podcast receiver on their device, and they download it. Do you uh, do any cross-promotion or parallel announcements on social media? Yes, I publish on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn also. Do you have any idea how those channels are working? Twitter works quite effectively because people are not afraid to retweet and like stuff on Twitter. Facebook distribution is worse. Uh, LinkedIn distribution for some episodes has been quite good because it's kind of a professional network, and Software Engineering Daily is a show that helps people with their professional life. Going back to to step one, finding a guest, how do you find guests? One way is I see people in social media, I see the people who are often getting retweeted and quoted and the people who are getting their YouTube videos posted the most on social channels. And I say, well, this person clearly is an evangelist uh, and an influencer in this world. I should probably have them on my show to talk about the thing that they're evangelizing a lot. I also get a lot of recommendations in my Slack channel and um, yeah, and stuff on social media that gets recommended to me by the Facebook algorithm sometimes is is relevant to a topic that I might be interested in. I go to a lot of conferences, and when I see an interesting talk, then I send the, the person an email and say, hey, I saw your talk. It was awesome. You want to come on the show? What kind of response rate do you get when you invite people? At this point, it's about 90%, probably 80 or 90%. Most people that I reach out to, they say, yeah, I'd love to come on the show and talk about something. I think that's one of the big uh secrets to podcasting that's so awesome is like you get it gives you an excuse to email almost anybody that you're interested in talking to and they're happy to come on the show do you have any idea if that's because they've heard of your show and they have a positive reputation or do you think that people in the community are becoming more open to communicating through podcasts sometimes it's it's the first and they've heard of the show many times they've never heard of the show but I mean, if somebody reached out to you and said, hey, can I interview you for my show? It's usually, that's a pretty flattering request. And if you're somebody, you know, as long as you're not somebody who has is so inundated with those kinds of requests that you are kind of stingy with your time or you can't give e- interviews to everybody, then yeah, you're going to come on the show. And it doesn't matter if they have 20 listeners or if they have 20,000 listeners. It's just interesting and, and it feels nice if somebody invites you on their show. We often tell guess when we're recruiting them some numbers uh, about the show. Do you do you lead with that? I do lead with that. Yeah, I tell them that there are this many thousand people listening and it would be a good opportunity for your personal brand. Yeah, and in open source world, people place a lot of emphasis on getting information out to the community, building their community. And you could say the same about commercial. You People you're talking to are potential customers. Yep, 
That's right. Is it tough to stay on top of so many different areas of software engineering where you can see what's emerging and who the influencers are? I don't find it that tough because I don't have to go super deep and I don't have to be a practitioner into these areas. I need to know the questions to ask, but I don't necessarily need to memorize the answers. We've both done shows on fields we know relatively more about and relatively less about. I feel like the things I know something about because I've used them in my job, I have more insight into those areas. Do you find as now really, um, so now that you're, you're full-time uh, journalism, do you feel like you have enough insight into these technical problems that you can translate them to your listeners, even though you're not solving those problems on a daily basis? The shows where I really understand the topic always do better than the ones where I'm asking questions that I don't really even understand. There are certain shows that I've done, you have been the editor of certain shows that I've done where it's clear that I don't really understand the topic that I'm reporting on. The first show I did on Kafka, clearly I didn't have an understanding for what Kafka was. I did prepare as much as I could for it, but I still didn't understand the topic super well because I'd never worked with the distributed queue before. Um, but over time, like more recently, you, like there was a show I did on Kafka event sourcing and you, and you told me like, that was a good show. The reason that show was good was because I had done more preparation for it. I actually understood the topic thoroughly. I wasn't just asking these questions that I knew were good questions to ask. I actually understood why I was asking those questions and the show performed, uh, well, uh, relative to that. So, um, but Also, as a journalist, I have learned how to ask questions. Even when I don't understand the topic thoroughly, I can detect from reading content or watching YouTube videos, what are the questions to ask, even if if I'm not going to understand the answer. Sure. And I've had the experience listening to different tech podcasts where it sounded to me like the host was not tracking the guest. The host did not understand a response happened sometimes. It's interesting because like I did this show about reactive streams yeah. and like I told you, I don't understand reactive streams very well, but that show was really popular. So I know that I was asking the right questions. I know that the guest was giving useful answers to my questions. And even though I wasn't totally tracking what the guest was saying, because I had prepared enough and I had written down enough questions, I was always asking stuff that would lead him to, towards explaining the con- content better and the listeners loved it. Do you ever download whatever the thing is, set it up, and try it out as part of your preparation? Almost never. Now, I can understand that. It can take an entire day to download something like Kafka and get it set up. And if it's distributed, you have to build a network of boxes. And so uh, I'll give you a pass on that. Okay. Um, how far ahead are you booked? Uh, sometimes I'm booked like three or four weeks ahead. Uh, right now... You know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and as soon as Thanksgiving ends, I've got two weeks of interviews that I'm going to be doing. Uh, and then I've, you know, I also have a queue of finished episodes. I've got about 10 finished episodes in the queue. Having done hundreds of shows now, do you remember your shows very well after you do them? I mean, I, 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 remember, I remember conceptual things, and, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you'll be having a conversation with somebody and suddenly you'll realize that you understand a, a topic well enough to articulate a complex observation about it. And you'll be like, wow, I didn't even know that I was able to articulate that. But, you know, it's nice. It's nice to be able to, like, pull on this, like, archive of knowledge that I have that I did, don't really realize that I have. In the time that podcasting has existed, the audio quality has done nothing but improve to the point where now the standards are quite high why is it tough to get good audio quality on a podcast and i say this we're sitting next to an open (laughs) as i said we're sitting next to a city street with traffic going by and horns honking and so maybe that's a self-answering question do you have anything to add to that (laughs) so my number one thing that has improve the quality of my show is doing client side recording. So asking the guest to record on the client side so that their recording is not going over the network and not getting. And so they're not, their recording won't pick up Skype artifacts or some VoIP artifact. I would say that's the biggest 
problem. Well, that's the biggest limiting factor for audio quality on a lot of podcasts because if you're recording a VoIP uh, call, then it, that just is going to limit the quality because you know if the network if there's a network partition and somebody's giving a, a detailed answer and it makes you know like that kind of thing and it totally breaks the experience. Um, but there's a product called Zencaster that. I use that has helped a lot with that. So, yeah. How long do you see yourself doing this? When I started the show, I was thinking this would be a good lifestyle business. I can learn a lot about software, and as I'm doing it, I can think about products to build on the side. Um, and that's kind of my plan: is I'm going to continue doing this until I start another business that becomes. Uh, a good business. Like I just released a product called Ad for Prize on the iOS app store and I'm hoping it takes off and I'll hire a full-time developer to work on it and I'm hoping that will turn into a company. Where do you see podcasting going in the next few years? It's going to keep growing until augmented reality becomes a big deal and then when augmented reality becomes a big deal then there's going to be more rich content experiences and the idea of a podcast will slowly fade into the background but i think it's got a good 10 or 20 years uh of of being a useful medium but like once we have augmented reality once we have self-driving cars and and there's really no yeah i think that there's there are certain technological factors in the future that are just inevitably going to disrupt the experience of only listening to an audio file. Maybe podcasts become this thing where you've got rich media accompanying the purely audio format and then it's still referred to as a podcast, but um, it feels too primitive to me to be durable beyond 10, 15, 20 years. Do you have any advice to anyone who's considering starting a podcast? Prepare for every episode make a detailed outline so that you always have a safety net of questions to fall back on. That is the biggest lesson that I've learned, particularly from software engineering radio, is preparation solves everything. Yeah, that is a great lesson. Is there anything else you'd like to add on any of these topics we've covered? The one thing I want to add is something I was going to mention about the monologue episodes is that uh, the monologue episodes, I try to bring the feeling of an audio book to the podcast, and I think that there's a, an opportunity for um, more podcasts that feel like blog posts or audiobooks, uh, and if people are thinking about doing shows, I actually do think the, that there are some interesting monologue type of formats that could be done. That's the last thing I guess I'll add. Okay. Jeff, thank you for agreeing to come on your own show. <laughs> Thanks for interviewing me, Rob. You're welcome. You're welcome.